through the providence of a great and gracious God in heaven, we are blessed to assemble in the name of his Son to honor God in song and commune with him in prayer, to show respect for his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to meditate upon a part of the Word of God given to us by the Holy Spirit, inspiring men to record the very will and way of Almighty God. Let me join with Randy in thanking all of you for being here tonight. It just absolutely thrills my soul to see this crowd and these amen corners fill. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen that, but it does my soul good. God bless you. And to have visitors here tonight, so many of you have come from a long way to be with us. A lot of you I've had as students. You were telling me about days gone by. It thrills my soul to hear it. And those of you that preach, uh, you've taken the time to come and encourage this effort. And for that, we are in your debt. As Randy mentioned, we've got some folks here that have come from Laverne and down south of Murfreesboro. Hugh and Rosalie Pfeiffer and Reuben and Sylvia Robinson, dear friends of mine, have driven over to encourage this effort, and uh, it is certainly an encouragement to me personally. When I think about the opportunities that we have in this country presently to preach the Word of God, we're not afraid we'll hear tanks rolling up and soldiers walking in to shut down this service. And may this blessing that we enjoy tonight be the privilege of our children and our children's children even till Jesus comes. And God forbid that any kind of foreign influence rob us of the freedom we have to worship God as we see revealed to us in his blessed and holy word. We classify things and we classify things for identification and we classify things for communication. There may be other reasons, but God certainly classifies humanity. And I'd like to take you to his classification of mankind in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And when we look at this classification, some of you may find yourself classified by the God of heaven in a situation where you dare not continue in that classification. If you have love for your own soul, if you have respect for the appreciation that God has for the possibility of your life. And on the other hand, those of us that the Lord would classify as being in Christ, being in his son, Oh, we need to rejoice. Rejoice at our identification given to us by the God of heaven. Rejoice in the opportunities that we have to wear the name of the Son of God. Rejoice in the hope that we have. Rejoice that we live within the context of God's providential care and keeping over our lives. And so here we go in this classification given to us by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 2 through Paul's inspired pen. The apostle said, and you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom 
Also, we had our conversation, our manner of life in times past, in fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, or literally made us alive with Christ, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made with hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope having no hope, and without God in the world. Now we'll stop. How many times do you see the word world there? Starting way up at the beginning of the chapter. When you read in the Bible about the world, you're reading about the mass of humanity that by sin is alienated from God and under the control of the devil. The world. And there in the world, people are spiritually dead, biologically, biologically alive, spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Now, you'll note plurals, trespasses, plural, sins, plural. Not dead in Adam's trespass and sin, dead in your own trespasses, dead in your own sins. And he said, we were walking according to the course of this world. I mean, we just fallen in and, and we were living like everybody else that didn't know God and that were in a situation where they didn't have God as a heavenly father, didn't have his son as their savior. We just fell right in and we were just living like those individuals. And unfortunately, it made us children of wrath. You know, some folks seem to have the idea that the Bible talks a lot about God's grace but not much about his wrath. But you'll notice in this very passage that we are looking at right here, it's mentioned in the same passage. The great love wherewith God has loved us and the mercy he has shown us and the salvation by which we're saved according to his grace. But he said, when we were over there in that world, before we received God's mercy and God's grace in our salvation, we were children of wrath. We were exposing ourselves to the very wrath of God. A lot of folks seem to have trouble understanding that. They just walk right along with the world as if everything is fine while they are staring the wrath of God in the face. They may, with one automobile accident, be snatched into that realm where the only future is the wrath of God Almighty. It would be a terrible thing if we had to end right here with this idea. Oh, you were children of the devil. You were under his domination and control. You had a spirit of disobedience within you relative to the will of God. And you were the children of wrath. But 
Now, here's your contrast word. But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us or made us alive in Christ. Now, you know the difference in God's mercy and God's grace. I'm not trying to reflect on your intelligence when I just remind you that God's mercy is when he does not give us what our sins deserve. God's grace is when he gives us what we never could deserve. So we have been so fortunate as to be blessed with the potential mercy of God and with the grace of God. And when the Bible says to us very clearly, not by works, lest any man should boast. I mean, you can live and die in that world and you can be benevolent. You can be a good neighbor. You can be a good citizen. You can do all you can to have a good community and still die and face the wrath of God Almighty. Not because you were good. Not because you weren't a, a good parent. You were a good neighbor. You were a good uh, citizen of the community and all of that. But in spite of all that, you can't be that good. And you cannot do that much good so that you can say to God in the day of judgment, think about all the good I've done. And so I'm expecting you to open for me the doors of heaven on the basis of what I've done. We'll never be that good. We'll always need the grace and mercy of God. And we have received that in Jesus Christ. Now, he says, over in that world, you were without God. It's a terrible thing for people to go through this earthly existence as brief as it is without God, without knowing God as a heavenly father, without loving God for all that he has done for us potentially, just without God and without hope. Hope is one of the strongest forces of life for potential good. Hope can take you through the fiercest storm of your life. Hope can sustain your soul in the darkest night of your life. One of my favorite songs, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm is a golden sun and the sweet silver song of the lark. So walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. Romans 8:24 assures us that we are saved and are by hope. The Hebrews writer in that tremendous discussion of the power of hope in Hebrews chapter 6 said it, it potentially anchors our souls. If you start in verse 13 of Hebrews 6, he'll say, When God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men barely swear, swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and enters into that within the veil, whether the forerunner has for us entered even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Nine times in the book of Hebrews, we're informed that Jesus has gone to heaven. He's in heaven right now by the right hand, the majesty on high. And that's where our hope is anchored. 
we are anticipating, we are expecting as God's people in Jesus Christ, when this life is over, we are expecting that we can go where our hope has been anchored. And in the meantime, with all that's moving through this country, all the tides of secularism and commercialism and sensualism and ungodliness that are moving tides through this society, through this culture, you and I can be sure and steadfast with this anchored soul. Uh, but people without God over in the world, they don't have that. They don't have the anchor for their souls. But you and I are blessed to have that privilege. When you think about this world and the nature of it and the tragedy of it, turn over to Ephesians 4 and start it in 17 and watch Paul explain it to us. This is what's happening all around us, folks, even today. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their foolish heart darkened, he says. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness or lewdness, and, and they are fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And so here's the world, the world that has been captivated by its God, by the devil, a world that is living by its own lust, and they, they're beyond feeling. He says, who being past feeling? You know, a man that can murder little babies like the person that's been on trial that man must be without feeling. He must not have a conscience. There was a criminal in Nashville that did some terrible things to folks, and one of the law enforcement people said he doesn't have any conscience. Now, people who are normal do have a conscience. I mean, we all do. God created us like that. The British scholar C.S. Lewis said there's never yet been found a society of people. However, remote they may be from what we would call civilization, but they have a sense of ought and ought not. That's your conscience. If you look at our English word conscience here in the Bible, you'll find it's a compound word. Take the prefix away and you have the word science, which we all understand means to know. And you put the prefix back, it's a knowing wit. Your conscience is the innate, the inborn, the God-given capacity or ability we have for self-knowledge. Now. The conscience is not a God. The conscience has to be educated as to what is right and what is wrong. But if we have been taught that a certain thing is wrong, and then we come along and we practice that anyway, there will be a response within our conscience. And potentially, that guilt is going to be a lever of penitence. It could become a blessing to us. But you know, the Bible talks about the conscience being seared as with a hot iron. Over in 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1, Paul said, The Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. When I was living in Texas, some of the ranchers told me that when they would take their branding iron out, they didn't burn mesquite bushes to get it hot, they used little butane tanks get that branding iron hot, put it right to the side of that cow. And then when that wound healed, they said you could prick that and there'd be no nerve response. The nerve had been seared. 
The conscience of people sometimes can just be seared. They persist, they persist and wrong until they're past feeling, Paul says. And they've just given themselves over to lewdness, lasciviousness. But watch this contrast. He said, but you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him. Now watch this line, I love this one. And have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. I want to pause there a minute. You know why I'm a Christian? The Lord taught me to become a Christian. No, he didn't come down from heaven and do it. He's, he's up there by the right hand of God. But he did it through people that took his word, the word of the Lord, and taught me what to do in order to be saved. Indirectly, Jesus was teaching me. I find that to be a wonderful thing. And to get people out of this world where they are children of wrath, where they are condemned in the sight of God, where they have fallen in with the ways of the world, to get them out of that, they have to be taught the truth by Jesus Christ. And when you and I come along and we take his truth and we teach that to people and they learn that they don't have to continue in that world, they can turn away from it through a penitent mind and they can receive as they are baptized into Christ remission of all of their sins, then they've been taught by the Lord. And he says... Uh, what happens here when you have heard of him and have been taught of him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off that old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Isn't that beautiful? That here's an old man of sin, corrupt, caving in to lust, living according to the ways of the world, and man, the truth of God gets into that person's mind and it commences to stir his heart for good. And then he decides, I don't want the devil to control my life anymore. I don't want the devil to take me to hell with him. There's a better life than this. And that's what I want. I want to have a new person. I don't want to drag around this old corrupt man of sin. I want to be set free with a new person in the sight of God. And that's the possibility that we're talking about. So God says about the mass of humanity, you're the world. You're separated, alienated from me by your sin. And you are without me and you are without hope. Ah, pity the person who stares death in the face with the horrible realization, I have no hope. I am dying now, I'm going into eternity, and I have absolutely no hope. Talk about a tragedy. Talk about a heartbreaking sadness. That's it. Have you ever stood by the bedside of a dying person who knew they were dying without hope? I have. If you love people, it'll break your heart. It'll move you to tears. Just to hear the last things they are saying, knowing they're unprepared to meet God. Like one person told me, preacher, I'm not afraid to die, but I am afraid to meet God. It's terrible. It's horrible. That's not what God wants. I mean, his mercy and grace have been poured out here to rescue our souls from that. So now we're going to shift gears. We've been thinking God's classification of the world. Now, let the sun start shining. Let's think about another classification. 
And it's going to come up with this little contrast word. He said, you were without God and without hope in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you that were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one. He's obviously talking about Jew and Gentile. He's our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he might make of himself, of the two or twain, one new man, so making peace. Now, that word make, that he might make one new man, the same word that could be translated create as it is sometimes. That he might create. And in the New King James, they use that very concept. That he might create in himself one new man, so making peace. You know, the Lord himself was actively involved in the creation of this universe. Read Colossians 1. He said to be the beginning or the firstborn of God's creation. Not that he's the first thing God ever created, the assumption of a religious cult, notwithstanding that minimizes the deity of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And even in their translation, the scripture says he's a God. The Bible says he's God. He's deity. He's deity. But be that as it may, he's the firstborn of God's creation. For by him were all things created that are in heaven that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he's the head of the body of the church. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ creating a new person, a new man, his church. Now look at verse 16 very carefully. And that he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now I will promise you, if you'll turn back in your Bible to Ephesians 1, the last two verses, you'll see what the body identifies. Talking about what God did for Christ, he has put all things under his feet, gave him to be head of all things to the church, which is his body. See that? The church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now where are men and women reconciled to God? In the world? Oh, that's ridiculous. And so it's a ridiculous observation for a person to say, I don't think the church saves you. I've never preached the church saves you, but I preach the church is the saved. If you're looking for saved people, friend, don't look out in the world where folks are without God and without hope. And these millions of Americans that they call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, which social scientists say is the fastest growing religion in America, the religion of nuns. They don't have time for religion. They say we're spiritual but not religious. Church is not important. They ought to read something like Ephesians 2.16. Where are we reconciled to God? For a man to say, well, you know, you don't have to be in the church to be saved, then you're trying to tell me that you can be saved over in a devil-dominated world where people are without God and without hope? You couldn't be serious if you're really thinking about that. We are reconciled to God in one body. Watch the body. He says it's the church. We are reconciled to God in the church. But it's by the cross. Why is it by the cross? Because it's the cross of Christ that makes the church possible. 
Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I thought Jesus died for everybody, didn't you? Is it not written in Hebrews 2 and verse 9, He by the grace of God tasted death for every man. Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to say he died for the church? Because technically those are the people that have reached the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb when as penitent believers they were baptized into his death. And the Lord added them to that saved body of the church as he was doing in Acts 2 and verse 47. So we're reconciled to God in one body, but it's by the cross. You know the thing that really makes the church of Christ important? The cross of Christ. You take away the correlation of the cross of Christ from his church, and what do you have? You don't have much. It takes the cross to make the church. And so consequently, when you look at this classification, now watch this one. When God raises us up with Christ, where does he put us? Well, we read it a little earlier. He raised us up to sit in a heavenly. Now, the translators put the word places there in italics. He raised us up to sit in the heavenly. The book of Ephesians is the only book in your New, your New Testament that uses this heavenly places, and it uses it several times. When we are raised up with Christ from that watery grave of baptism, we are raised to sit with him in a heavenly realm. There is a realm beyond the material, the materialist notwithstanding. And in that realm of spiritual reality, you and I abide as the very people of God because we are in Christ. And as surely as we are in Christ, then God places us in a realm of spiritual reality. The world cannot appreciate this. They, they may scorn it. It may be ridiculous. Why, if you cannot use one of your senses to verify it empirically, as they would say, it's a myth. It's not even reality. But when they commence to develop a faith produced by the Word of God and a faith strong enough to lead them to obey the Son of God, and when we are baptized into Christ in the process, we are honored by Almighty God to be placed in a heavenly place in a realm of spiritual reality. And brother or sister, rejoice. That's where God put us. If you're a child of God, you're right there in that heavenly place. Now, look at what we have. After saying he reconciled both to God and one body by the cross, and came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were nigh. Ah, peace is one of the great blessings of life. Like the little hymn says, peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin. The blood of Jesus whispers, peace within. A lot of folks would like to have peace, but they're having trouble finding it. They might think they're going to find it in chemicals. It's not there. They might think they're going to find it in alcohol. It's not there. They might think they're going to find it with material things. It's not there. The real peace of soul and heart and mind is when you are in the right relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't swap the peace of my mind and the peace of my soul for what the world has to offer with its fool's gold of deceptive pleasure. When we think about preaching peace to those who are far off, I love Romans 10 when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to talk about the nature uh, of a preacher. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Did you know Randy has beautiful feet? He really does because he preaches the gospel of peace. 
We were down in Guyana, and we had a fellow working with us. He had been a, a Marine, great big guy, strong. And uh, I watched John one day. We were getting ready to go out and start trying to teach people out in their huts and so forth. And he'd been out there for two or three days, and he was doctoring his feet. He had blisters on both of his feet. And I said, John, I'm looking at some beautiful feet. Yes, sir. Going out trying to teach people that God loved them too, trying to teach them what to do to be saved. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of, watch this one, the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. See, we preach peace with God. Romans 5.1, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we have peace with God, then we can open up to the peace of God, which the Bible says passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Peace with God, peace of God, being preached by those that have beautiful feet. So when I think about preaching peace to those who are far off, you Gentile folks, you know, you were not under that first covenant. But now under a new covenant, you are as important as anybody. And consequently, those that are far off and those that are nigh. Now watch this one. For by him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Look at that contrast. Out here in the world, what is it? Without God and without hope. Over here in Jesus Christ, in his body, the church, what is it? You have access to God. You can call God in heaven Father. You can pray to your Father any hour of the day or night. You have access to the throne of God. I wonder how many times I take for granted the blessing and privilege of prayer. One of the greatest honors that any human being could ever experience is having access to the throne of Almighty God. Now, if tomorrow I went down to the governor's, uh, down, down to the Capitol building and walked into the governor's office and said, uh, Tell Gov Governor Haslam that Tom Holland's here to see him. What they probably would do would say, uh, you know, over at Vanderbilt, they've got, a, they've got an area in the hospital where they would be happy to talk to you, and maybe that's, that's where you need to go. Let them check you out. But let me tell you something. I've got access to the throne of somebody greater than all governors that have ever lived, Amen. and that's Almighty God. And you don't think I'm an honored person? But it's not, I'm not the only one. You, my brothers and sisters in Christ, in his body, in his church, you've got access to God. I pity people out here in this world. They run into all kinds of difficulties, and they can't say, my Father in heaven, I need your help, because God is not their Father. The devil is their Father. John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of your Father, the devil. The devil is the one in control of the world, it's only those of us in Christ, we've been called by the gospel out of the world and called into a beautiful relationship with the Son of God that we have access to the Father. And it says, going on back in Ephesians 2, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. If I'm in the household of God, I'm in his family. That's one of the beautiful pictures of the church, 1 Timothy 3, 15. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, but it's the house of God. This is the family of God. How do we take for granted so often 
the blessing of just having brothers and sisters in Christ that love us, that care for us, that we love. Bless me the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. And in a world where there's so much hate and so much inhumanity, you and I live in a family where we love one another with a pure heart fervently. We are the very people. We're, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and we are in God's very household. And then he concluded Ephesians 2 by saying, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You know, back under that old covenant, that temple was such an important place that's where their religion centered in that temple. You and I, as God's people in Jesus Christ, constitute the real temple of God now. It's not made out of marble or brick or stone. It's made, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 5, of living stones where we offer spiritual sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. So when I think about the contrast, God's classification, here's the world, People without God and without hope. Here are the folks in Christ, in his body, in his church, men and women with hope. Over here in the world, people that don't know God. Over here, people that can say, our Father who art in heaven in reference to God. Over here, people that are caving in to the pressures of the world around them. And people over here who are connecting to God and his son and living a totally different kind of life. So, God's classification. Now the real question. Where are you? Where are you? Are you in the world? If so, I've just read to you from the scripture, God's description of your unfortunate condition. You want to stay there? If you may. I hope you don't want to. What about those who've been called out of that world? Saved by the grace of God. Because we've accepted the offer of salvation provided by his son. Not that we have saved ourselves in that we've done so much good. We've been so kind and benevolent and all of that. So God's indebted to us. We demand interest. None of that. But God has poured out his mercy and grace upon us in providing for our salvation through Jesus Christ. And when you and I respond to the Son of God with a penitent mind, and when we are unashamed and unafraid to sweeten our lips with his loving name, and when our faith is so real and strong, it leads us to submit to the Lord's command to be baptized, believing with all of our hearts that puts us right into the death of Christ, right into that blood of Christ, connecting us to the cross. And God puts us in a saved body in a world that is doomed and lost and on the road to eternal destruction. I would like to think that every responsible person in this assembly tonight is in that relationship with the Son of God. To know those blessings with the hope of the eternal blessing of heaven itself. But if you're not in that one body, you could become a part of it. But it'll take an act of God to put you in it. Among the many things that are so wonderful and beautiful about the church of Christ, it takes an act of God to put you into it. 
Men and women build churches, they talk about joining them. Yeah, you can do that. To get into the Lord's church, it's going to take an act of God to put you in it. It's going to begin with you letting his son become your savior. And if you let his son become your savior, he'll do for you what he was doing for people back in the first century. He added them to the church. That's Acts 2, 47. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's the way into that one body of the church that's made real by his cross, that connects to his cross. And there you may become so blessed now with the eternal prospect of heaven at the end of earth's journey. We have a song we're going to sing, and I'm going to tell you something. That singing tonight just lifted up my spirit. And uh, I'm grateful that we could unite our hearts and voices and praise to God like that. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if while we start singing this exhortation, and that's really what, just singing and exhortation, if something would start happening in your mind, if the realization would be so real to you that you would think, I don't have to stay in this world controlled by the, I don't have to let the devil control my life and my destiny. I don't have to let him pull me down to hell with himself. I'm going to demonstrate my faith in the Lord. I'm going to demonstrate a courage to obey him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when we start singing this song, people would come down one of these aisles with that kind of faith that kind of obedient heart. All heaven would rejoice, and everybody here that loves you, they'd rejoice too. And then when you submit to that command of the Lord and come forth from that watery grave, you're going to rejoice too. That's one reason we're going to be singing, to try to encourage you. If one time you knew the joy of your salvation, maybe that day they were singing, Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. But the old world out there, kept pulling. You work with people that were of the devil. They kept ridiculing. They kept pulling. You spent a lot of time with Hollywood watching their filth and trash on television. Maybe you got on the internet watching some of that junk. And so maybe whatever pulled you away, you realize I haven't lived the commitment I made the day that I was baptized into Christ. And I want to. So I'm coming back to my first love I'm coming home, and henceforth I will live for the one who died for me. And that will relieve your mind of burdens, of uncertainty, and pain, and guilt. And set you free to become what God created us to be, men and women in the likeness of our Creator. Would you think about it? It's your soul, but we're interested in it. And everybody that loves you will be praying for you. We sing to encourage you.